0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter four, 1 John chapter four. We've been working our way uh, through John's first letter for uh, several weeks now. And as we've uh, done this, we've said that John is is combating a particular idea and it was given a name in the early church, uh, but it's not unique to that time. And it's uh, the idea of Gnosticism. And this says that Christ himself as revealed in the word of God is not sufficient. You need some sort of higher knowledge. And so uh, the idea is that there's revelation outside of God's word that we need. And and John comes along and says, no, that's not true. In fact, you can know that you know Christ. And that really is is the, the question that he's addressing. How can we have confidence that we know Christ? So there are a couple of questions that we can ask. How do we come to know Christ through faith in Christ? And There's a second question. How can we know if that's happened? And that's a question that John is addressing uh, throughout this book. And as he does this, he has three tests that he uses uh, to help us know if we know Christ. Uh, can anyone help me remember test number one? You gotta unmute yourself if you're gonna answer. Right. All right, truth test, right, truth. Right, and that's the foundational one. Do you believe the truth about Jesus Christ, particularly as he's revealed to us in God's word. So the truth test. Uh, what's test number two? Life. Yeah, the life test. And, and this test says, do you live in a way that shows that you know Christ? In other words, does your life show what you believe? And so uh, we want to, by the way that we live, we don't earn God's favor because Christ has already done that on the cross, but the way that we live shows that we are God's children, right? So the truth test, the life test, and the third is love test. yes the love test exactly and this test in particular is uh referencing our love for the family of god for the brothers and sisters so there are commands throughout scripture to love our neighbor uh, to generally love people but here in particular he's talking about a family love loving those who are within the family of god and so as we walk through we typically ask okay which test is he addressing in this passage Uh, sometimes it's one very clearly and sometimes it's not as clear and sometimes it's multiple so as we jump in tonight into First John chapter 4, we'll be in verses 13 through 16, and we're going to ask which of these three tests is John focusing on in our passage, which of these three tests. So First John 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So if you were looking at these, uh, these three tests, the truth, the life, the love test, which of these three would you say John, uh, John is focusing on primarily here? Love test. Okay, the love test, that's a possibility. And and there's a good reason you would think that because he focuses a lot, a lot on love. But I actually think there's a different primary test potentially. Life. Okay, the, the life test, we um, show who we are. I think maybe it might be the third. A truth test. Okay, well, that was the only option left. So there you go. Uh, the truth test. <laughs> and, and obviously we've said that there are uh, times where there are elements of of multiples. And I think that's true here because obviously – um, there's a big f- a focus on the love of God and what it produces in us, but what we see here is uh, in verse 14, we have seen and testify that God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Then in verse 15, he goes on, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so what he's really addressing at the baseline is what do you believe about Jesus? And so ever since Jesus came to earth, this has really been uh, the fundamental question that faces all of us. What will you do with Jesus? And so verse 13, John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And then he says, how do we know that we are in Christ and Christ is in us? How do we know that? End of verse 13. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Exactly, exactly. He's given us his spirit. Now remember, John isn't asking uh, how do we abide in Christ, but how we know that we abide in him. He's addressing the question of confidence or knowledge. How can we know that this has, has happened? And so John says that there is this inseparable connection between Jesus, the son, and the spirit. And the spirit testifies to us that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. And so this naturally uh, brings up the question, well, what does it mean or what does it feel like or what does it look like to have the spirit of God? Uh, now, different churches or different uh, folks throughout church history have tried to answer this different ways. Maybe there are certain manifestations of the spirit. But Paul answers this one way in Romans chapter eight, uh, verses uh, 15 and 16. Paul writes, therefore, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the particular ministry that Paul's talking about here is a ministry of the spirit within us to sort of tell us, not to sort of, but to actually tell us that God is our father. We call this the subjective witness of the spirit. So that word subjective is an important word. There are certain aspects of uh, salvation that are objective or that are just true. So for instance, justification, which is the doctrine that God, not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done in the courtroom of God's justice, declares us righteous. That's justification. That's an objective thing that happens. It's an objective declaration of God based upon what Christ has done but there are aspects of our relationship with God that are subjective. Uh, Last week, uh, a well-known Anglican theologian by the name of J.I. Packer passed away. His most famous book is the book Knowing God. It's an excellent book, but in that book, he he references how it is that we relate to God, and he says uh, the, the, the baseline way we relate to God is not through justification because that means that we're relating to God as our judge. But rather, he says, we relate to God primarily through adoption. Because in adoption, God is our what? He becomes our father. Yeah, he becomes our father. And so, um, relationally, we conceive of our relationship with God uh, this way through God as our father. And this is what Paul is getting at. And I think it's what John is getting at as well that there is this subjective, relational sense in which we know Christ. In, in that we know that we know Christ, and the Spirit of God is how we get this subjective sense. Uh, so it's a little bit like this Imagine uh, that you have uh, a young child or grandchild, and this child comes to you and says, Well, how do I know that you're really my mom? Or how do I know that you're really my dad? And your way of answering this question is to go to some folder in some file cabinet somewhere and pull out a birth certificate and say, see here, it says on this legal document that you're my child. Well, is that important? At one level, yes, that that legal document is important because it declares something to be true. But in terms of your day-by-day relationship with that child as as a parent or grandparent, if all you ever have to let that child know that he or she is is your grandchild or your child, you're really missing the joy of what it means to have a child in the first place, aren't you? If, if, if your relationship with that child is like, look at the paper, look at the paper, look at the paper. And it's never look at what you experience. Look at what it means to be my child. That means I tell you I love you and you say you love me. It means that I look out for you. It means that when you're with me, you're safe. It means that I feed you and I clothe you and I play with you and, and we do all these things. And there are all these relational subjective benefits to this child parent relationship. And that's what John is getting at here. It's this subjective witness of the spirit. It's not that justification doesn't matter. Justification, God's saying, you're not guilty, you're righteous. That matters because it's the only ticket into heaven. It's the only way we can know God. But ultimately, the joy in our relationship with God comes through this relational, subjective aspect of knowing Christ. It can't be ultimately what we rely on. Like, "Do do I have this relational love from God? It has to be Christ and Christ alone and what he's done. But it it is an extremely comforting and joy-giving doctrine to know that we have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God testifies to us relationally, subjectively, that God is our Father. And so this is one gift of the Spirit to us to do this relational work in us. Okay, if this is true, if the Spirit does this, How does this fall into these three tests that John gives us? Well, he goes on and kind of addresses this in verse fourteen. Verse fourteen, he says, "We have seen and testify what." That the Father sent His Son. Yep. That the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I memorized this, and when I was uh, the church I was growing up in, I don't know. We I feel like we uh, we taught it to three-year-olds. And I just remember, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It has this kind of cadence to it. And that, John says, is what we've seen, what we've evidenced. And so here he's addressing the truth test. Believe the truth about Jesus. Now, John, in his gospel, as well as here in his first epistle, emphasizes being an eyewitness. Uh, So if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the book, he says, that which we have seen and touched and heard we testify to you. And here he uses similar language, what we have seen and testify. So there's this eyewitness relationship uh, with Jesus. But in this case, how is it that we see? Well, it's by the spirit opening our eyes. It's the spirit testifying to us that these things are true. By this we know because he has given us his spirit and we have seen this. The spirit opens our eyes. This is uh, the doctrine of illumination or how God opens the eyes of blind sinners to see. He does this uh, through his spirit. So we don't ultimately figure out who Jesus is because we're smart. You can be really stupid and see who Jesus is. You can be really smart and miss who Jesus is. What he's saying is here, we can see because God's spirit opens our eyes. God's spirit reveals it to us. It's not merely words on a page of a book. It's a living, breathing relationship with a human being who now lives in heaven and God reveals this to us by his spirit. Now, at, at the beginning, we, I asked you, uh, you know, what does it mean to be, or, or which of the three tests is he getting at here? And they were a mixture of answers. Now, I think the most basic is the truth test. But there are elements of all three because here he gets at the moral test. Well, how does he do this? He calls Jesus the Savior of the world. Well, what is Jesus saving us from? The world. (laughs) Okay, well, he's saving the world and from the world. That's true in a different sense. He's saving us from sin, isn't he? He's saving us from an old life to a new life. He's, He's changing us. So we must be saved from something. And so there's an implied here, there must be a change of life. God is saving us from something. And so of course we have to live a different life. And so uh, at the beginning when, of, of this book, when John talks about, uh, we have seen and testify these things, he's testifying to Jesus' identity in his incarnation. Here, he's identifying Jesus' mission, that Jesus comes as a savior. He didn't just come to be seen. He came to do something. He comes to rescue people From sin. So, what kind of people does he rescue? Well, verse 13 tells us whoever confesses what? That Jesus is the Son of God. Hey, I know that voice. Yeah. (laughs) that, That Jesus is the Son of God. It testifies to us the truth about Jesus. So, What he's doing here is he's linking what I was talking about a couple verses ago. The objective truth that God saves sinners through Christ and the subjective relationship we have with God through his spirit. So one evidence that we know Christ is a subjective relational aspect through the spirit. But here he also says it's this objective truth that Jesus is the son of God. So he connects it to both of these things. You can't separate The objective truth about what God does from the subjective relationship that we have with God, the Father. So follow this flow in verses 14 and 15, what we've just been looking at. There's this truth. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. Therefore, people believe in Jesus as God's Son. But then there's this follow-up benefit at the end of verse 15 to confess the truth that Jesus is the son of God, what happens then? What does God do? The end of verse 15. Lives in us. Yeah, he lives in us. And then b- vice versa, uh, we live in him. And so there's this uh, scripture speaks of both us being in Christ, which is kind of more. It's t- sp- uh, spoken of more often, but it also talks about Christ in us, who is our hope. Christ in us, the hope of glory, receiving Christ. So there's this aspect in which we receive Christ, he's within us, and there's this aspect of union with Christ, we abide in him. And so it's both of these things. And so Jesus, uh, as the savior of the world, you can't disconnect that from Jesus as the son of God. Jesus can't be the savior if he's not the son of God. He can't be one without the other. In other words, if he's not human, he can't pay our sacrifice or the penalty for our sin. But if he's not God, he's not able to pay that infinite sacrifice. But because he is both truly human, truly fully God, he can do this and does do this. And so uh, there's this, I don't know, good biblical language abide in God. Well, what does it mean to abide in God or for God to abide in us? Well, what do you call what you do in your house? We ask you where you what? Yep. Think, yeah, where you live. I'm seeing your mouth it, but yeah, um, where you live. And that's what it really means. It means that we find our life in him. And when we find our life in him, he lives in us. It's where we live. It's where we abide. It's where we stay. It's, it's, it's our home. If we make our home in God, God Makes his dwelling place his tabernacle his temple in us, and so there's this beautiful reciprocal relationship. We're in Christ, and Christ is in us. So if we find our life in God, he lives in us. So, what does this do for us? Verse 16 So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us now. There are, there are more than two types of people in the world, but there are at least two types of people when it comes to God's love. There are those who find it far too easy to believe that God loves them because they don't understand what it means to be a sinner. But there are the other kind of people who are so overwhelmed by their weakness, by their frailty, by their humanity, by their sin, that they find it impossible to believe that God could love them. And John is really addressing that second person here. That person who doubts God's love. That person who questions God's love. And and, and there's a part of that that is true and accurate because we think, how could God love, the the way that John put it, uh, John Newton's, "A, a wretch. A wretch like me. How could God save someone like me? Or a song we're gonna sing Sunday, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Like, how is that? possible. How, how could that, how, how could I even comprehend a love like that? And he says that we come to know and believe that God loves us by confessing the truth that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. We can only truly know God's love through Christ. So we must believe the truth about Jesus's identity. He's the son of God. And we must believe the truth about Jesus's mission. He's the savior of the world. Because what is the most visible, beautiful, magnificent display of God's love in history? The cross, isn't it? It's Jesus' death on the cross for sinners that don't deserve it. Some of whom are standing there mocking him, who will turn to faith in him through his death. It's, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And we can't truly know love apart from this. And then John, again, repeats something we saw last week. He says, God is love. And both times he's connected this love to Christ's sacrifice, Christ's mission, Christ's saving mission. So how is it that God is love? He's in love in sending his son to die for sinners, and then John uses uh, language that we just saw in verse 15. Whoever abides in love abides where? In God. Yeah, in God. And then God abides in us. So if you live in God, you live in love. And if God lives in you, love lives in you because God is so the essence of love that to truly understand the gospel means that we abide or live in love. You cannot separate the two. So kind of baseline, fundamentally, this is about the truth test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? But where does John get us here? He says, you can't separate that from living in love. So we've gotten to the end, and we've got shades of all three of these. So the Father sends the Son. Therefore, people believe in the Son— Therefore, when we believe in him, we abide in God. And John now says we not only abide in God, we abide in love. So how do we know that we know God? We know that we know God when we live in love. And we know that we live in love when we have loving relationships with other people. So as we wrap this up, kind of draw, draw it all, kind of put a nice bow on it at the end. We know that we know God when we relate to the people around us in love. We know we believe the truth test that Jesus is the son of God when we abide in love. We know we believe the truth test that Jesus is the savior of the world when we live in God and God's love lives in us. So how should the truth of the gospel affect the way we relate to one another? And here's an exercise uh, for you, maybe the rest of this week. How should the truth of this passage, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the savior of the world, and if you abide in God, God abides in you and his love abides in you, how should that change the way that you relate to uh, maybe that person that you're living with that's hard to get along with? Or or that neighbor behind the back fence that is no fun to be around? Or uh, that friend at work or school? How does God's love change the way we love each other? Because to abide in God is to abide in God's love.